Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. Liquidchurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. The Lion King of Kings. Uh, I'd like to begin tonight by actually reading um, a brief excerpt from chapter 12 of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to you. If you've come... um, we're a very simple congregation. We read children's stories. And uh, this is the scene in which the, again, how, quick, by way of background, how many have seen Narnia? Or you've, oh, great, majority of people. Good for you. Um, this is the scene in which the Pevensey children actually journey through Narnia towards the stone table to meet Aslan for the first time. And as we saw last week, they had only heard of his mighty name, Aslan, up to this point. It was a name that caused a mixture of feelings in Peter, Susan, Lucy, and Edmund, from joy and excitement all the way to dread and fear. The kids were not really sure what to expect when they were going to encounter the lion and lord over all of Narnia, the king of the wood, the son of the emperor beyond the sea. And so in chapter 12, we pick up where they are climbing uphill towards Aslan's camp, and about to meet this majestic beast, and it reads, Lewis writes, Just as Lucy was wondering whether she could really get to the top without another long rest, suddenly they were at the top. And this is what they saw. They were on a green open space from which you could look down on the forest, spreading far as anyone could see in every direction except right ahead. And there, far to the east, was something twinkling and moving. By gum, whispered Peter to Susan, the sea... And in the very middle of the open hilltop was the stone table. It was a great grim slab of gray stone supported by four upright stones, and it looked very old. It was cut all over with strange lines and figures that might be letters of an unknown language. And they gave you a curious feeling when you looked at them. The next thing they saw was a pavilion pitched on one side of the open place, a wonderful tent it was. And especially now when the light of the setting sun fell upon it with sides of what looked like yellow silk, cords of crimson, tent pegs of ivory, and high above it on a pole banner which bore a red rampant lion fluttering in the breeze which was blowing in their faces from the far off sea. While they were looking at this, they heard a sound of music on their right, and turning in that direction, they saw what they'd come to see. Aslan stood in the center of a crowd of creatures who'd grouped themselves round him in the shape of a half moon. And next to Aslan stood two leopards of whom one carried his crown and the other his standard. But as for Aslan himself, the beavers and the children didn't know what to do or say when they saw him. See, people who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it now. For when they tried to look at Aslan's face, they just caught a glimpse of the golden mane and the great royal solemn and overwhelming eyes. And then they found that they couldn't look at him and went all trembly. Go on, whispered Mr. Beaver. No, whispered Peter, you you first. No, no, sons of Adam before animals, whispered Mr. Beaver back again. Susan, what about you? Ladies first, whispered Peter. No, you're the eldest, whispered Susan. And of course, the longer they went on doing this, the more awkward they felt. Then at last, Peter realized that it was up to him. So he drew his sword And he raised it to the salute and hastily saying to the others, come on, pull yourselves together. He advanced to the lion and said, we have come, Aslan. Welcome, Peter, 
son of Adam, said Aslan. Welcome, Susan and Lucy, daughters of Eve. His voice was deep and rich and somehow took the fidgets out of them. They now felt glad and quiet, and it didn't seem awkward to them to stand and say nothing. How many of you have actually ever seen a lion in person? You've seen one in person, not on TV. I saw one at the San Diego Zoo some years ago, and I recall it simply because it was an awesome experience. I've been to a lot of zoos, but I was excited because they had a massive African lioness there. And, uh, you know, I got to the cage. Colleen and I were there. We're like, oh, this way, this way. We go past the otters, go past the porcupines, and there it is, the giant cat cage, right? And how disappointing was that? (laughs) Because in the corner of this cage with this big stone mountain, and clearly there's a big, you know, cave at the top, lies this lioness in the corner of the cage, just curled up, just going, (sighs) yawning. And, um, you know, it was just kind of like the mighty beast. I mean, come on, you know, the king of, of the animals, king of the jungle. You've got to be kidding me. But we were lucky because we timed it in such a way that actually it said, you know, performance is every 10 minutes. And we're like, oh, I wonder what a performance is. And so I uh, realized the performance is, is, is the poor boob who actually goes into the cave and gets the actual lion out. That's the lioness. And he coaxes him out with scraps of meat. And so this guy, you know, he's dressed in khakis, you know, it's like a safari theme, you know, got the hat and everything. He comes out and he's like, okay, folks, you know, it's a guy like from the Planet Explorer guy. He's not dangerous. Uh, he coaxes this cat out and it was great because he like kind of like had like a little whip, like a, like a crop. And he's, he's feeding this and all of a sudden this mighty lion comes out and he just kind of like shakes his mane. And the whole thing unfolds like a lock full of Bon Jovi's hair. <laughs> this is New Jersey after all, right? And it was neat because, uh, because a guy goes, come on, come on, boy, you know, and he starts poking him and everything, and, like, you know, the big pat, you know, starts, you know, padding to the center, and we're all just standing there, you know, taking pictures and everything. We're like, wow, that's cool. It's a massive animal. And when it walks, its muscles just kind of ripple. And, uh, and the guy goes, now, don't be afraid. He's a massive beast, but he, come here, kitty. And he, like, throws a piece of meat, and, like, it kind of catches on his finger and everything, and, like, he can't get it off, and then just, like, kind of slops on the ground, and so it hits there, and the guy goes down. But the, but the cat must have thought like he was going to try to take it back. Because the cat goes, <laughs> this massive, that I can't even replicate, snarl. And it takes this guy, who does this every 45 minutes at the San Diego Zoo. This thing snarled, and he was like, whoa, boom. He like went you know, far back. It totally caught him off guard, and it totally took our breath away. You saw in this thing the ferocious power of that quick and deep snarl. That there was a latent power and fury in this creature. It wasn't even a roar. <laughs> it didn't like roar. And yet it left this huge indelible mark of its power and strength, kind of hinting at the violence and havoc it could wreak were it properly aroused. Years ago this happened, but I remember the thing because the sound, the sight of that lion to this very day. When we're in the presence of something or someone of such power, of such violent grandeur, such might and latent fury, it has that kind of soul-rocking effect. Evoking both awe, you know, just a feeling of wonder at the sight of this thing, like took 19 pictures of this thing. And also like dread, like those bars are iron, right? (laughs) 
And when Peter and the kids first encounter Aslan, the mighty lion and lord over all Narnia, they experience just those ambivalent feelings, like a sensation of wonder, but mixed with fear. People who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it now. Aslan is an overwhelming presence. Great, royal, solemn, the majestic, all-powerful king of the wood, son of the emperor behind the scenes. So the response of the kids is actually to be nervous, filled with trembling. The text says, they found they couldn't look at him and went all trembly. In his classic book, The Idea of the Holy, that was written in 1923, there's a theologian by the name of Rudolf Otto. And he presents God as an alluring but terrifying question mark. (laughs) And in the book, Otto expounds at length upon his groundbreaking concept of the mysterium tremendum et fascinasis, which is this, the dreadful and attractive mystery of God. Holy and holy other. No point of reference for us, he's so big. The idea that God himself is someone greater and far more powerful than our human mind can actually comprehend. A being that is holy and holy something else. Someone that mere mortals can faintly bear to actually stand in the presence of. Early in the Bible, the ancient Israelites knew well that mix of like fear and fascination that accompanied the presence of God. I mean, Moses and his people, they, right, they were well acquainted with the terrifying otherness of Yahweh. They saw his mighty power close up. They heard, they feared the mighty, terrifying sound of his roar. In Exodus 20, we read, Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood far off. Then they said to Moses, You speak with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. If you spend any time in the Old Testament, you're familiar with the terrifying presence of God, right? The the Yahweh of Israelites, the Father of Jesus. You've read of the smoke, the thunder, the lightning from heaven. It was common in Old Testament times for God to shake the earth or rain down effects from heaven to demonstrate his awesome power. Which, quite honestly, makes most of us today very thankful for Jesus (laughs) and the New Testament. (laughs) Because in Jesus, we have God taking the form of a man. Actually, not a powerful, overwhelming presence, but actually a lowly, very basic one. A carpenter. <laughs> a blue-collar worker from Nazareth. I mean, nothing much to be afraid of. Jesus, he's, he's a prince of peace, right? Meek and mild. Finally, we breathe in a relief, a God that we don't have to fear. One we can trust and draw close to. Yet, that's not entirely true. As Kurt Bruner and Jim Ware note in their helpful companion, Finding God in the Land of Narnia... In Mark 4.41, it reports this. Even the disciples feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? The disciples who were closest to Jesus were actually gripped when they started realizing who their master really was in that lake in Galilee. Back to the Lewis tale. Trembling, terror, and exceeding fear. Peter Pevensey felt all of this as he stepped out into the open space at the top of the hill by that stone table. And at the first sight of the great lion Aslan, he struck dumb with dread and awareness that he stood in the presence of incalculable might. It gripped and it held him frozen. It's kind of a moment of truth. There, there on that hill, Peter realizes this is the majesty of the king of kings and it's a fearsome thing. 
He understood that this lion, and this lion in particular, was not something to be toyed with. And one understands that as we approach the son of the emperor beyond the sea, they must, you know those kids must have had their conversation with the beavers reverberating in the back of their minds. Do you remember that? When they first hear Aslan's name and learn he is a lion, it gives Susan actually reason to worry. She says, ooh, I thought he was a man, said Susan. Is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Oh, that you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. <laughs> then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Not safe, but good. Would you believe that about God? That he's not altogether safe, at least in the conventional notion of comfort and safety that we share from a human perspective. But that regardless of what he calls each of us to experience in this life, he is above all other things good, full of goodness, to be trusted, brimming with love and mercy and actually care and concern for his precious creatures. This is the first crucial truth that Peter learned about Aslan. And make no doubt, it was a very steep price that this lion paid to prove his goodness to the Pevensey children. As we saw last week, when Aslan laid down his life on that stone table, the great lion sacrificing himself for those little children, paying for the sins of a traitor like Edmund, taking on the full punishment and cruelty of evil itself, we saw how far a good God will go to demonstrate his love and commitment, his, his goodness to the creatures that he treasures. Grace, we learned, is called. That's the heart of the gospel. The story of God on our side of the wardrobe, sending his beloved son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins in our place. That's the face of goodness. God's goodness requires that he actually absorb the ultimate in suffering, humiliation, punishment, and destruction to preserve the life of his children. And that goodness, that loving sacrifice unto death on the stone table, it tempers that overwhelming power and majesty of Aslan. It's what sets the children's hearts at rest. And understanding that while the king is not safe, he's actually willing to take a knife into himself. Somehow good. And that's the image of Jesus with which we are most familiar and perhaps most comfortable, aren't we? The sacrificial lamb that was slain, right? Aslan on the stone table, Christ on the cross. We saw it last week, a symbol of God's love, mercy, and grace. That's the central image, I mean, around which God's story evolves in the Bible, right? A willing sacrifice, God's story. A sacrificial lamb that voluntarily lays down its life, allows its paws to be bound, his palms to be pierced, emptied of power, allowing his enemies triumph over him. But there's another side to that. And I want to invite you to turn to the book of Revelation. Because the last book in the Bible, and as some of you know, is considered apocalyptic literature. Bibles are in the center row, and you can pass them down. And we actually have a bunch of kind of flipping around tonight, so I want you to keep your finger in Revelation. We'll toggle between that and some other parts in the gospel. But Revelation is a book that uses symbolic imagery to communicate hope about the future of the world. When Jesus returns and God's kingdom comes in its fullness. Revelation chapter 5, 5 through 6. 
Last week didn't make you flip at all. But this week, we got some work to do here. So take a look in these verses, because the Apostle John is given a vision of Jesus in heaven. And the image is an interesting one, because it really reflects the two sides of God's character. In verse 5, Revelation 5, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 5. In verse 5, John tells us a heavenly creature calls him to look at Jesus and says this. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and roll back its seven seals. Understand, the scroll simply represents, this is in heaven, an account of what God has in store for the world in the future to come. So here's a direct reference to Christ as the triumphant lion of Judah. And you understand, in apocalyptic literature, okay, in the Hebrew mind or the Greek mind even reading this, they understand what this meant. A lion was the foremost powerful symbol of authority and power over all creation. And so it assigns Jesus, he's the lion of Judah, the powerful, almighty king of the universe. But watch in verse 6. When John looks at Jesus, he sees a lamb. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Standing in the center of the throne. So he says, go look at the lion. And he looks at the lion, Jesus, and he sees a slaughtered lamb. (laughs) I mean, quite the opposite of a fierce and roaring lion. (laughs) And you understand, if you were a Jewish mind, you also would have understand this is also a powerful symbol. Not necessarily powerful, but a poignant symbol of Christ's submission to God's will. Christ the lamb, the perfect sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. He defeated the forces of evil by dying on the cross and as just as his fathers asked. So John presents this dual image of Jesus here as both lion and the lamb of God. And you see that there's two sides of the coin to Christ's character. Kind of a dual nature. On the one hand, he takes the form of a humble, humble suffering servant while on this earth. But when he returns... He will be revealed as a powerful, conquering king and judge. Not a silent little sheep, but with a mighty roar for all the world to hear. In fact, the role of Christ the lion will actually be to lead the final battle where Satan is ultimately defeated. And and I actually invite you to quickly turn over to Revelation 19 now. So keep your finger in that. A few chapters over, Revelation 19. And again, when Jesus returns to this earth, his countenance, we see, is going to be that of a warrior a fierce symbol of power and judgment replete with the trappings of a warrior God. Revelation 19, verses uh, 11 through 16. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head... Are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter, and he treads the winepress of the fury. Of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written. 
King of kings and Lord of lords. The lion king of king. That is the identity John reveals to us with which we will next see Jesus Christ return to this earth. If we're looking for the white bathrobe and beauty pageant sash, we're not going to see it. (laughs) This is the Jesus, actually, and be real candid with you, many of us would rather not know. (laughs) Because it isn't very cuddly, and he isn't very safe here. The description we're given is almost the antithesis of how we know him in the Gospels during his first tour of duty on earth as a humble carpenter, right? He's a prince of peace. And now he judges and makes war in verse 11. His eyes are blazing fire. He's dressed in a robe that's dipped in blood. And the armies of heaven are following him. And when he opens his mouth, out of his mouth comes a sharp sword. And he will rule them with an iron scepter. And then this verse, quite honestly, which actually gives me a little pause to shudder as I think about it. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Talk about a muscular verse. (laughs) This is high testosterone stuff. (laughs) The fury of the wrath of God Almighty. (laughs) In other words, the reason that the Lion of Judah... Jesus will return to this earth on a white horse with a sword and army is because he's coming to fulfill his father's will again. Only this time, his father hasn't asked him to lay down his life before his enemies. Rather, he is coming to unleash the full wrath of God Almighty on those who oppose him. And the crowd went silent. Is he quite safe? I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? Said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course, he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king of kings, I tell you. This is a part of God's story that quite honestly is a bit intimidating and kind of distasteful to many of us. Yet, for me at least, Narnia kind of reintroduced me to this crucial reality about God's nature. On the flip side of grace, he is also a God of terrible wrath. His mercy is tempered by justice. And although the lion may sleep, make no doubt, he will return to tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And this introduces us to a very disturbing idea. That while loving and gracious, ours is a God of devastating judgment. A God who actually burns with fury and anger towards pride and rebellion. And if, and if you're uncomfortable with that, I just need to even stop here. I totally identify with you. I am too. I'm like, I don't preach this way. This is what you watch on the upper channels, like in the wee hours. Like, wrath of God is coming. <laughs> I grew up in a church where that was actually the face of Jesus that was most regularly highlighted. They loved when Jesus kicked over the table with the whip of cords in the temple. Loved it. Must have heard nine sermons on it. (laughs) Nothing on the woman in adultery where Jesus actually holds the stones back. And I grew up with this distorted notion of an angry God who was primarily concerned with punishment of his creatures. As if God's main concern was monitoring the activities of his creatures and just waiting for them to step out of line so he could pounce on them like a lion. 
That God that I grew up with was vindictive, petty, and to be feared in the unbiblical sense of the word fear. And if that's your conception of God, you either won't stick with the Christian faith very long, or actually, you'll, worse, you'll stay in it for all the wrong reasons. Fear being the motivating factor, rather than love. So I just want to acknowledge, it's understandable if talk of God's judgment, his wrath, his anger, the anger of God, makes you balk. Sadly, God's anger is often emphasized to the neglect of his grace, right? It's used by desperate preachers, callous believers, to often manipulate people, induce guilt or fear, and just to snap them into line, as if that's God's greatest wish, that we just all fall into line, behave. Oh, it's about love, folks, right? And you know fear, threat, coercion. It can make folks, motivate folks to do many things, but the one thing it can't make someone do is love, which is actually what God's after. Now, with all that being said, I'm submitting to you tonight that if we only emphasize God's grace, <laughs> we actually run the risk of similarly distorting the full character of God. That is, we'll wind up with an imbalanced view of God, of Jesus Christ, or King Kings, if we don't understand his anger, what that even means. We spend a lot of time talking about God's kindness, what it is, what it's not. We don't talk a lot about God's anger, especially here at Liquid. It's not because we're afraid of offending anyone, but we are currently living, right now, 2005, in an age of grace. And God has entrusted and called us to preach a gospel of reconciliation, the forgiveness of sins of anyone. Grace tells us God loves us, accepts us, as is, no strings attached. Christ died for us calls us his children. More than that, through Christ we have friendship with God. Amen? We live under grace at this moment in present reality. It's a blessed thing. Yet in the age to come, as we see here in Revelation, we'll be introduced to his anger, his judgment. Get to see that dad flaring up. And we have to understand exactly what that means if we're going to know him as we're called to worship him in the fullness of his glory and power. So even what does that mean? Let me ask that question actually straight to you. How are we to understand God's anger? What is the nature of, of, of it? I mean, the wrath of God. What's it mean? What's the source of it? What actually makes God angry? You might be surprised. Let's start there. Let's actually work backwards. Your personal point. What makes you angry? <laughs> What, well, think about it. What riled you up this week? <laughs> Just this week. Traffic? <laughs> Standing in long lines at the mall? <laughs> the thought of overbearing family coming next weekend? <laughs> There's lots in this world to upset us. <laughs> to ignite a deep-seated anger inside. Which is one of the reasons we're typically a bit afraid of the, the, the characteristic of anger or wrath. I came across a revealing article in the Tampa News recently, an ABC action news report that illustrated the destructive nature of rage. It's from Tampa. It says a Tampa man is out of jail after a possible road rage incident that gives new meaning to the term driving left of center. Nathan Winkler, inset, 31, was arrested overnight and charged with aggravated stalking for allegedly terrorizing a mother and her two children. According to police, Winkler pulled up alongside Michelle Fernandez as she was headed south on Armenia and began beeping his horn and flailing his arms, pointing at her. Fernandez, meanwhile, could not see Winkler's face because of a handmade sign in his window that read, Never forget, Bush's illegal oil war murdered thousands in Iraq. Apparently, this starts over political views or bumper stickers. 
said the Tampa police spokesman Joe Durkin, she had a Bush Cheney sticker on the back of her car. There's no excuse for it to escalate to what it did. Winkler apparently grew more agitated as they continued to drive along, allegedly trying to run Fernandez's car off the road several times over the next few miles. The 34-year-old single mom increasingly grew concerned for herself and her two children in the car and called 911. Road rage, right? A bumper sticker that somehow sets off something in this, this, this tool of a man. Oh, I'm going to set that lady straight. They they don't realize the president is killing people, and so he tries to run them off the road. (laughs) Tool. Anger. Misdirected rage. Ill-conceived vengeance. That's what scares us, quite honestly, about anger or wrath, because we associate it with being out of control or clouding judgment. Take a look at this picture. This is from an easy pass toll lane outside of Albany. For those of you listening on the internet, it's a picture of two cars wedged side by side, nose to nose, trying to jam their way first through a single easy pass toll lane. Look at the guy in there. And you look at that and think, what were those two thinking? And that's the answer, right? They, they likely weren't. They were likely on the road just kind of edging in and out, jockeying for pole position, and their anger drove them to try to beat the other one through the toll. People are such tools. And their anger makes them do crazy things. If you think that's disturbing picture of road rage, check out this one. This is actually a picture of what a man's ex-wife did to his car in the wake of their divorce. Talk about sending a message. And by the way, I I just kind of, it's so funny, I was like, look at this thing. I I love that she decided to plunge four Pix axes (laughs) through his hood and windshield. Like, I don't know, one, he just may not get the message. Uh, (laughs) You get the point. That's human anger. It's often out of control, driven by mean-spiritedness or a fleshly desire for revenge. And its chief characteristics are pettiness, small insignificant slights or hurts or offenses, selfish, I'm right, we've got to teach that person, and destructive. That's why we fear it. That's why the notion of God as having anger in his nature is so disturbing to us. I mean, an all-powerful, omnipotent God, he's got lightning, the powers of heaven at his command, and he's angry? No thanks. <laughs> but see, this is the trick. God's anger is nothing like ours. It doesn't resemble human anger in its scope, its motivation, or its fruits, the final results. If ours is petty, selfish, and destructive, well, then his is... Actually, let's turn to Mark chapter 3 and see exactly what God's anger is like. This is a quick glimpse into the nature of God's anger. And it's a passage, actually, in which Jesus really puts on display the redemptive nature of God's wrath and his righteous rage at injustice in our world. Mark chapter 3, let's just look actually, um, you've got parallel Bibles. Let's look at, to begin with, at the um, message version in the right-hand column. It's under the heading, Doing Good on the Sabbath. Then he went back, Jesus, in the meeting place where he found a man with a crippled hand. And the Pharisees had their eyes on Jesus to see if he would heal him, hoping to catch him in a Sabbath infraction. He said to the man with the crippled hand, stand here where we can see you. Then he spoke to the people. What kind of action suits the Sabbath best? Doing good or doing evil? Helping people 
or leaving them helpless. And no one said a word. He looked them in the eye, one after another, angry now, furious at their hard-nosed religion. Stop right there. This, this is a classic confrontation between Jesus and his chief nemesis, the Pharisees. And they lock horns over an issue that was kind of a hot-button issue in ancient Israel, the keeping of the Sabbath, the Lord's Day. In a nutshell, right, the Torah, the Old Testament law, first five books of the Bible, which the Jews followed religiously, dictated no work be performed on the Sabbath. It was to be a day of rest as God decreed. And most hardline rabbis took that literally to mean no work, no effort, no exertion whatsoever. So an extreme example, some popular rabbis even said, if you're a donkey or you have an ox and it falls in a pit on the Sabbath and is struggling to get out, sorry, your hands are tied. You are not to help it, for that would be a violation of, of, of Sunday. Our Sunday, their Saturday, Sabbath. And so as Jesus walks up to the meeting place and encounters this man who's got a crippled hand, the Pharisees are like really excited. Because they think they've caught him. (laughs) Here comes the renegade rabbi, the son of God, who was challenging religious laws and tradition. And so if Jesus heals this man, he'll be guilty of breaking the law that actually said medical attention could be given to no one on the Sabbath unless it was a life and death situation. On the other hand, if Jesus doesn't heal him, he'll be lacking in compassion, exposed as powerless before the people who've set their trust and hopes in him as their Lord. The Pharisees had their eyes on Jesus to see if he'd heal him, hoping to catch him in a Sabbath infraction. Verse 5, he looked them in the eye one after another, angry now, furious at their hard-nosed religion. Jesus got angry. Not just angry, apparently. Furious. That is full of fury. And dare we say, rage. Look at the NIV version for more accurate linguistic rendering. Verse 5, Jesus looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Anger, deep distress. The word used in the original Greek here for anger is orge. Let me hear everyone say orge. Orge. It's an almost kind of violent inner fury. And it's ignited deep within Jesus by the actions of these religious leaders who are so heartless that they see a man who's crippled and their first thought that comes to their mind is to use his disability as a trap for tripping others up. You talk about true lack of compassion. Exploitation of the weak and wounded and it makes Jesus orge, angry, furious. Upset is too mild. Can we talk a moment about a Jesus who gets angry? I think many of us grew up with our primary conception of the flannel graph Jesus, who always has the lamb in his arms, the white bathrobe, the sash, Jesus meek and mild. This ain't that Jesus. This is the Jesus who gets orge, enraged. Aristotle actually tells us the etymology of the word orge is desire mixed with grief. Jesus so badly wants people to understand How to live out a spirit-filled life with God's love out of the heart. And these guys just don't get it. Ah, your hard-heartedness is killing me. He sees this scene, this injustice, and it makes him angry. Let's balance this with a picture of God's anger from the Old Testament. Keep your finger here, Mark. We're going to return back to it. Turn quickly to Amos. 
It's a minor prophet we don't, typically don't look at, but chapter 5, verse 21. In this passage, God is speaking to the Israelites through the prophet Amos. And he's angry. He's cranked up. He's a bit heated about something. Amos 5, starting at verse 21. I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But lest justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. In other words, we see God here talking to a group of religious people, and he says, stop with your hymns. Stop with your sacrifices. I'm sick of these religious games you're playing. I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I can't stand your assemblies. In Isaiah, God has a similar rant. And he says, in effect, your worship gatherings make me want to puke, vomit. They sicken me. Away with the noise of your songs. Is God angry? Yeah. At what? The hypocrisy? The injustice? And he says in verse 24, but let what? Justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never failing stream. What's really firing God up here? Flip to chapter 8, Amos 8. Amos 8, 3 actually gives a revealing picture of God's judgment and wrath unleashed. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn to wailing. Many, many bodies flung everywhere. Silence. And then this. Hear this. You who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat, skimping the measure, boosting the price and cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. What's, God, what's got God angry? God says, you are so obsessed with becoming wealthy, with lining your own pockets that you trample the needy and you do away with the poor of the land, the weakest people. You skimp when you give to those who are hungry and you cheat folks who have no money or power and you actually take the sweepings off the floor, selling people wheat mixed with dirt because you know they're hungry and they have no choice but to buy it because they're starving. They're starving, poor, in need and you take advantage of their poverty to make even more money. And it makes me furious. You say you follow me, but you exploit the needy in in your midst. You take advantage of their oppressed situation. And I wish you'd stop hosting your little religious meetings. Stop singing your friggin' songs. You make me sick. I am orge. I am furious. This, my friends is a God who sees injustice and gets angry, who says, that is wrong, and I am tired of it. Rob Bell, pastor of Mars Hill Bible Church, shares these insights and posits the question facing us this way. When we talk about a God who's angry, perhaps a question we ought to ask is this. Which is more disturbing? A God who gets angry or a God who can see injustice, abuse, and exploitation 
and not get angry. A God who can see somebody taking advantage of someone else and say, ah, you know, no big deal. A God who can see war and violence, rape and murder, and a thousand other injustices done by men under the sun, but say, "Eh, you know, don't get too riled, don't get upset, doesn't really rankle me, no big deal. What's more disturbing to you? See, we're often upset or disturbed by the notion of a God who gets angry and judges the deeds of men. But far more disturbing to me is the idea of a God who sees the abuse and injustice and exploitation in this hot and dirty world and doesn't get angry, is not compelled to action. There is a divine anger with Jesus in Mark 3. He sees injustice. This man with a crippled hand needs healing. And the religious people want to prevent it. And it is not right. It makes him angry, evokes a righteous rage deep within the Son of God. Now, here's the difference between human anger and divine anger. What does Jesus' anger in Mark 3 lead to? Turn back now to Mark 3, verse 5. Back to the story. Verse 5 says, He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And his hand was completely restored. In other words, God's anger doesn't lead to destruction in this case. Rather, his fury begets a beautiful act of healing and restoration. Which is not something we typically associate with anger and judgment, right? We think destruction and wrathful violence. And there is that too, make no doubt. But in this case, we see Jesus demonstrating that God's anger is restorational. It's the motivation by which he actually brings healing and restoration to a wounded man. He doesn't just lash out the Pharisees. He channels it, which we don't relate to at all. Amen? When we get angry, when someone offends us, or we get slighted by some petty offense or denied entitlement, it leads to destructive rage. When I was about nine years old, I remember playing wiffle ball in the backyard with neighborhood friends. We'd play all day in the summer, sunrise, sunset. Well, we had one of our epic games, you know. We didn't play nine innings. We played like 33 innings, you know. And uh, we were in the heat of battle, me, Harry Torella, some other neighborhood kids. And I was pitching and, and you know, full count. And, and the pitch comes in on Harry. And I feel like it nicked the, the lawn chair. And Harry was like, no, it's a ball, man. It's a walk. It's a walk. And I really felt like I was being, it, it was like uh, tie score, everything. And so I got so upset that I was like, Harry, you. And I'm not going to tell you what I said. I cursed. I was just starting to learn those words of orge. <laughs> and the problem was we were playing in my backyard with an earshot of the kitchen where my mother was. <laughs> and my mom heard it, and she actually, boom, you know, what's really humiliating a nine-year-old boy? Come here. And I had to actually, she actually took me inside. I had to go sit in my room while the other kids played on, and this did not sit well with me. Um, <laughs> So as I sat in my room and the other kids continue their game outside, in full view of my bedroom window, what was my mom thinking? I remember watching, just furious that I was being punished. And, and Harry, of course, you know, it's a ball. And then Harry, like, hits a homer and he waves, you know, and he's running around the bases, like, waving at me <laughs> inside my house. He's pointing, like, you know, oh. And, you know, I'd start doing, I'd start, I was, I'd start tapping on the window. Hey, this isn't right. And my, my tapping turned to rapping. And then it like turned to knocking, and then to pounding, and then to punching, smash. And I put my nine-year-old fist through the bedroom window. I remember it to this day, because I was like, oh my gosh. (laughs) 
And I was like, I don't think it's bad, because this little red ruby bead of blood started pooling on the back of my hand. I was like, okay, it's not bad. And I started taking it back in. I was like, it's not bad at all. I looked at this side, then all of a sudden, all over my rug, and I started screaming, and my mom came running in. I started crying. Okay. (laughs) Perfect example of human anger. Typically petty caused by a minor and significant offense, usually selfish, doesn't take into account anyone else. I'm right, very self-righteous, and often destructive, leading to harm or ruin or injury, violence. But what the Bible is telling us, and what we need to recognize about God's anger, is that divine anger is just the opposite. As Jesus shows us, divine anger is noble. It's the opposite of petty. Jesus and God, their ire is typically tweaked by grand-scale injustice. It's not a missed wiffle ball call or someone cutting into your toll booth lane. It's anger about the exploitation of the weakest of the earth. About oppression of the poor. About the rich and powerful and religious callousing their hearts towards others. This is a noble wrath. And it is righteous. The opposite of self-righteous. It is actually other-focused. It's motivated by seeing the suffering and harm and injury suffered by others. And that fury mixed with grief evokes a desire to do something about it, to right the wrong, to bind the wound, to restore things to the way they should be. I think I felt a surge of the divine anger the other day as I was watching a news report about the current trial of the deposed Iraqi dictator, Saddam Hussein. Have any of you been following this? As you, oh, two of you have CNN. Look at that. As you know, Saddam is now captured and is finally standing trial in his home country for the murder and slaughtering of thousands of people. I mean, in one of the most terrifying displays of his brutality, he allegedly pillaged an entire village of Iraqis suspected of not being loyal to his regime. And he actually sent in his henchmen and they wrenched every man and young boy from every family and they disappeared, never to be heard from again. And the evidence is revealing that Saddam had them tortured, maimed, and ultimately murdered, buried in a nameless mass grave. And many of the women left behind were raped by Saddam's troops, a warning against disloyalty or disobedience. And so he's now being tried for these crimes against humanity. And it's something kind of just to see him stripped of his power and authority, you know, kind of like an older man in a baggy suit, no guns, no beret, no henchmen. He's kind of frail. But what unexpectedly just cranked me up the other day, they have this like weird law in Iraqi law where actually the defendant gets to cross-examine his accusers, and he gets up from behind his little table there, and he goes up to the women who have been raped, who have had their husbands taken from them, and their sons slaughtered, and he is the picture of defiance and unrepentance. I am Saddam Hussein. Do you not know who you are accusing? You are disloyal. He actually goes on the offensive And reduces some of these women to tears. Once again, terrorizing the surviving witnesses. And that, that made me angry. Really pissed me off. Because I want this man dealt with. I want him to say he's sorry for him to be repentant and punished for his crimes. For those victims to have their vengeance. For the wrongs he's committed to be made right. And what I'm coming to realize is that God shares that holy anger. That divine sense of outrage at many of the things going on in this world. And what's exciting about our story, our story, the story of God now and to come, is that the day of judgment, of God unleashing his divine fury, 
on those who are perpetrators of evil, suffering, and injustice in this world will come. It's promised. And we actually see it a few chapters over in Revelation when the King of Kings returns. Jesus part two. Turn back to our original text in Revelation 19, would you? As we have established, the image of Jesus returning this earth is, is of a conquering hero, a warrior on a white horse, a robe dipped in blood, eyes of flame, sword in his mouth. And verse 19 of Revelation 19 tells us, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider and the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. The day of the Lord's coming will actually be terrible for those who are the authors of death, decay, and destruction. It will be a cleansing of this earth akin to a purifying fire. The forces of evil, the Antichrist, thrown to the flames, and the prideful rulers of this earth, those who have exploited the weak, set themselves up against God, the arrogant, the prideful, slaughtered when Christ returns to tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And this is not something to be scared of. Rather, it is for the people of God, those who love and trust him, who... who those who love and extend his care and compassion to others, it's for the righteous to celebrate. Can you imagine, imagine this, the moment in history when all that has been wrong in this world is made right. The end of injustice, the righting of all wrongs, the meeting out of vengeance towards those who defy God and harm his children, the final conquest of the face of evil itself. You turn one chapter over into Revelation 20 and we're told that Satan himself at the end of days will actually rally the evil, violent, anti-God forces of this world for a final run at God's people. But in that moment, the lion kings of kings will devour him forever. Verse 9, Satan and his allies marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is the beautiful and terrible judgment of God. The outpouring of his wrath against all the source of evil who harms and threatens his creatures. It's the sober moment in Lewis's fairy tale where Aslan comes upon the white witch and then she was no more. And on this side of the wardrobe, it will be the moment in our story where evil's grip, stranglehold on this earth is finally broken. Satan will be vanquished, and Jesus rules as the king of kings. It's not to be feared. It's to be anticipated. We are to long for that day. His people are to celebrate the coming of our king and the righteous justice he'll bring. But here's the final thing you need to know to put this all together. While we are currently in this chapter of God's story, awaiting the king's return, we are to follow Jesus' model of divine anger, which always has as its goal healing and restoration ultimately. So you dare not linger at this passage in Revelation 19 and be like, awesome, kick butt. You can't, it's not ours to revel in the vengeful, bloody part of judgment. That's not the point. In Mark 3, right, we see the line of Judy gets angry, but what's he doing in his anger? He doesn't wreak violence on the Pharisees who oppose him. He channels his anger into a beautiful act of healing and restoration. Stretch out your hand, and his hand was completely restored. 
where human anger is ultimately destructive, God's wrath is ultimately healing and restorational. That's the whole point. The big idea, folks, so track with me. We're almost done. The product of God's wrath does not stop at simple destruction. That's fleshly anger. The byproduct of God's anger, and there's how you'll know it's God's anger, is healing and restoration. The restoration of that which has been ruined and neglected and unjust. And in this sense, it might be said that God's anger and wrath is, in the end, an act of the greatest love. Look at Revelation, what rises in the ruin of God's creation. If you skip over to Revelation 21, John tells us what we, he sees in the rubble of the divine anger. Look at this. I know we get all the sexy part of the bloodletting, all you like, you know, Braveheart fans, but look at this. This is the image we're left with. Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And here's what he'll do. Verse 4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne says, I am making everything new. I am angry and I am making everything new. This present darkness will not stand. It cannot be winter forever. I will put an end to the tears, to the death, the mourning, the crying, the pain. No more. Winter is over and spring has come. And the Lion King of Kings has come to be with his people forever. Now the dwelling of God is with men. That's the promise. And that's the fruit of God's wrath. Restoration of everything. The healing of people, the binding of their wounds. And that's what Jesus demonstrates to us in Mark 3. The ultimate fruit of a godly anger is restoration of those who suffered at the hands of the unjust. It's what I love about Narnia. It captures that aspect of divine judgment in stirring fashion. What's the first thing Aslan does after he's resurrected? Remember? He doesn't actually just kill the white witch. He raids her castle. Do you remember this? And her courtyard is littered with stone statues of all the creatures that she has laid waste to. All those innocent inhabitants of Narnia who were loyal to the true king. She had turned them to stone. And what's Aslan do? He makes a beeline to her castle with Lucy and Susan. And rushes out to the courtyard and breathes on each one of them. And suddenly their terrified, frightened expressions begin melting back into flesh and bone. And silence gives way to laughter. Lewis describes Aslan's ministry of healing and restoration this way, this way. Everywhere the statues were coming to life. The courtyard no longer looked like a museum. It looked more like a zoo. Creatures were running after Aslan and dancing around him till he was almost hidden in the crowd. Now for the inside of the house, said Aslan. Look alive, everyone. Upstairs, downstairs. Leave no corner unsearched. You never know where some poor prisoner may be concealed. Don't forget the dungeons. 
And her whole castle stood empty, with every door and window open, and the light and the sweet spring air flooding into all the dark and evil places which needed them so badly. Behold, I'm making all things new. As Jesus expressed his mission in Isaiah 61, I've come to do what? Proclaim freedom for the captives. Release for the darkness, the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And ultimately the day of vengeance of our God. There's a beauty to divine wrath, folks. For it leads to freedom and healing and restoration. Justice long denied is finally satisfied. John's revelation was meant to be a vision of hope, not fear. The early church wasn't scared by this. It was like their most hopeful book in the entire Bible. They were like, the wrath poured out by God is coming. The power through which Christ will rescue us and settle accounts with all who defy him and have oppressed the weak of this world. When Saddam receives his due, with widows, when widows and orphans are avenged and liberated, a new creation, things set the way they ought to be. I love in Narnia that with Aslan's return, the seasons change. Winter's gobbled up by what? Spring. Behold, I am making everything new. The Lion King of Kings roars. And with his breath comes the renewal of all things. Let's pray together. Lord, at the risk of um, leaving out application, what's this mean for us? Well, we know we can trust our anger to you. (laughs) Lord, we even admit now the things that make us angry in this life, many of them will never be righted. And we probably couldn't trust our own instincts, Lord, even if it were up to us to avenge them. But we announce, Lord God, you are holy and holy other. You are both the essence of love and the essence of a divine wrath all into one. And Lord, we trust in your love. We long for the day of your coming. We echo the prayer of John at the end of Revelation who says, come, Lord Jesus, come. Make everything new and begin with me. Lord, I pray that we could mirror somehow um, that divine anger. We don't want to be scared of, of a righteous anger, Lord, a rage that you have planted deep inside us. Your word says in your anger, do not sin, but anger itself may not be sin. So Lord, let us channel it into acts of healing and restoration for this hurting world around us. Give us the chance and the um, creative ability to do it just as Jesus did, Lord. Fuel our rage to the right place so that your kingdom comes more and more, inch by inch each day. We ask that you would do that in the matchless and powerful, mighty name of our King of Kings, Jesus Christ. Amen.